Well, good morning, Harvest Bible Chapel. Wow, that's hot. How are you guys? Good. It's good to see everybody. We have, uh, every single week I say this, and every single week it's true, we've been anticipating this Sunday just like we've been anticipating all of the Sundays, and I hope you have been too. Um, just eager to get at it. Question here for you. When was the last time somebody said to you, grow up? Like, just grow up, will you? Start acting your age. Remember that? Come on, think back with me here. Bring a few chuckles. Some of you students, your parents have said that to you more recently than you want. Husbands, your wife said that to you when you were acting like you were 16 instead of 36 or 46 or whatever the case is. You ever had one of those epiphanal moments that like, were meaningless in life? At least you think so. And you remember vividly exactly where you were standing and what was going on in the whole setting? Had one of those uh, sixth grade, I think I was. But I remember I was standing about 20 feet away from the curb inside the park of the town that I grew up in. And when I was in sixth grade, boy, I, I could badger the best of them. And I could get under people's skin. I was a little pest. I mean, I was terrible in that respect. And I remember I was hanging out with a few of my buddies. And um, some of the girls in my class were around. or, or They were in a car or something by that curb. And I was just badgering to no end one of those girls in our class. I don't know what the situation was. I can't remember if she was like wearing makeup all of a sudden or if she had a boyfriend or what it was. But I was just going on and on and teasing her about it to no end. And finally she just got fed up with me. And she goes, Robbie, that's what they used to call me growing up. Robbie, why don't you just grow up? Just grow up. Like it wasn't a question. And oh, did that sting. And I remember it vividly to this day in, in, in a little bit more of a refined way, maybe a lot more refined way. That's essentially what Paul is getting at here in our passage, in our text this morning. He's saying, hey, I want you to grow up. I want you to mature in your walk. I want you to start acting like you know how. And he does this. Now catch me, catch me here. If you uh, are starting to turn there, you can uh, grab a Bible. Some of the ushers do have some Bibles if you don't have a Bible with you. But listen to me here. This is how Paul goes about this. He doesn't explicitly say, I want you to do this in order to grow up, and I want you to do this in order to grow up, and I want you to do that in order to grow up. That's not how he does it here. But Paul is writing a letter to the Colossian believers, and basically he says, I am striving for your maturity in Christ, and in so doing, he exhibits and demonstrates the very qualities of maturity that he wants to see in them. You with me? He writes to them saying, I'm striving. He tells them, I'm striving and struggling for your maturity in Christ. And as he does so, he's demonstrating for us those exact same qualities that he wants to see in them. So let's go ahead and get to this uh, passage here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Paragraph here. You can follow along with me. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It's like Paul is writing to his kids. Like if you as parents were writing to your kids and saying to them, this is how I want you to be as you grow up, as you mature, and you demonstrating those very same qualities to them in the same way Paul is doing here. And did you notice as we went through all of the allusions to filling up per our theme for the year from later on in Colossians verse 16 of chapter 3, filling and fill up. And did you notice also all the allusions to striving? We'll get to them in just a minute. Rich here in that respect. So in doing so, in writing this, in Paul demonstrating these things, he demonstrates three marks of maturity, three marks of a genuine believer, of a mature believer, telling us how he strives for our maturity. And the first one is mature believers joyfully sacrifice for others. Mature believers joyfully sacrifice for others. Now look back at verse 24. He says, he has this phrase here, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is that? Well, let me start with what that isn't, what that does not mean. It does not mean that the effectiveness of Christ's death for our salvation was somehow incomplete or insufficient some way. It does not mean that. We know that because the preponderance of Scripture is very clear on that. For instance, you can jot this down and look at these during the week. Hebrews 9, 25 to 28. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not to partially put away sin, but to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, he says this, it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down at the right hand of God is a phrase there that, that conveys that it's done. It's finished. What he was about is done. It's over. He sacrificed himself for our sin. Done. And we know that because his last words on the cross as well were, it is finished. It is finished. That is, the work that I have come to do to sacrifice on your behalf for your sins, for your life, is done. And that's why Paul can also say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having gone through in several chapters beforehand what it means to put faith in Jesus Christ, he says, there's no more condemnation. He doesn't say, well, mostly there's no more condemnation, but you've got to kind of complete somehow what I've already done. doesn't say that. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean, though? I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It means that what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is a personal, tangible presentation to, of those now. A personal, tangible presentation of those same sufferings now, in the here and now, you and I, 
you to other people, you to me, me to you, and so on. A personal, tangible presentation. That's what's lacking because Jesus was a man who lived at a certain time, fully God, fully man, at a point in time. And he has left it to us in his wisdom. Don't understand that. Feeble us to make a personal presentation of his other-oriented ministry. And to fill up on that other-oriented ministry means to consistently and constantly make a tangible and personal presentation of Christ's other-oriented ministry to the people around you. That's a lot. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that's why, because he wants us to make a personal presentation, a personal tangible presentation of what he was all about, which was other-oriented service and other-oriented blessing and other-oriented ministry. That's why we are not bashful about saying to you and putting in your bulletin, here are some service opportunities where you can make a personal, tangible presentation of Christ's other-oriented ministry to other people. Opportunities that way. Now, any time that you consistently and constantly invest in other-oriented ministry, there is going to be sacrifice. You know that. There's going to be sacrifice when you invest in others in any way, shape, or form. When you give up something of value to you in exchange for something of hopefully greater value. John, or 1 John 3.16 says that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, meaning that we ought to give up what is dear and precious to us for the sake of others and for the glory of Christ. That means your time. Giving up your time. That means giving up your money. That means giving up your effort. That means giving up, and this is one we don't like so much in this culture, our comfort, our ease. Investing consistently and constantly in that other-oriented ministry that involves sacrifice. That's filling up on the afflictions of Christ and what is lacking. Sometimes that means giving up your health depending on the people that you are serving. remember talking to a gal um, that was in a previous small group of ours who served in a leper colony for a period of time. She put her health on the line. There are people who have given up their lives, completing the afflictions of Christ, making a personal presentation of them to the people in their here and now, People who have given up their lives. In fact, in the last hundred years, there have been more people martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, explicitly for their faith in Jesus Christ, than were martyred in the whole previous 1,900 years before that. It involves sacrifice, other-oriented ministry. Now, with sacrifice comes suffering. I've been alluding to it. There's suffering involved in it. It goes hand in hand. Rarely do you have self-sacrifice and you don't have some sort of suffering, some sort of enduring of an emotional or a physical pain, a fatigue. Let's keep it real, a loss of sleep. We have people who walk in here at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings. They lose sleep. Why? Why? What drives them? Because they want to make a personal presentation of the other-oriented ministry of Christ that he's left for us to do. Sometimes there's, a, there's suffering in that there's an inability to do other things. 
because maybe of a lack of time as you invest yourself in the lives of others or a lack of money as you invest your resources in others and in the ministry of church. There's frustration, certainly. There's struggle, sometimes physical hardship. Sacrifice always involves suffering. You can't get away from it. In Philippians 1.29, listen carefully to this. Something that you don't rarely, you, you don't very much hear these days. Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. It's been given to you and I as followers of Christ to not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We shouldn't try to necessarily avoid suffering at all costs. I'm not telling you to go headlong, but it comes with self-sacrifice. And so up to this point, as I kind of thought and studied this week, I started to chuckle. Like, what does this describe? A personal, tangible, other-oriented ministry to people around you. That's parenthood. Totally parenthood. It's personal. It's tangible. Sometimes it's more hands-on than you want. It's other-oriented, giving up what you want for them. Parenthood. But the thing that distinguishes that kind of self-sacrifice and suffering that goes along with it, and the thing that distinguishes Christian self-sacrifice and suffering from all other other oriented stuff is that we do so joyfully, or we should do so joyfully. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Like, what are you, nuts, Paul? I do so joyfully. How can he say that? The mark of a mature believer is to sacrifice joyfully. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he says, in all my affliction, I overflow with joy. I overflow with joy. Does that mark you? Does that characterize your life in Christ? Does that characterize your life at all? To overflow with joy and especially to overflow in your afflictions, your suffering because of your self-sacrifice, because of your investment in the lives of other people. Boy, search your heart on that one. Search your heart. Paul could say that because he suffered for two reasons. The love and honor and glory of Christ and he suffered because he knew that his suffering was going to produce and did produce a salvation and a godly repentance and a Christ-likeness in the people who he suffered for. That's why he could say, I, I, I'm all about this joyfully. I've, I've, give, I've been given by Christ this suffering. It brings him much glory and honor. And it raises up and develops and brings up people who are walking with the Lord ever more so. And that gives me great joy. Great joy. And we should be sacrificing joyfully for those same reasons. Confident that our suffering, our lack of sleep, our lack of time, our lack of whatever it is. Because we know it produces godly repentance and Christ-likeness and joy in people. Now, look back here. In verses 25 to 27, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Because it's almost like one parenthesis after another, after another, after another. It's like Paul is so overflowing with the things that he wants to say. He starts in here having ended verse 24 with, 
uh, the church, that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And oh yeah, about the church, it's of them that I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. You see, he mentions the church and he's like, click, I got to go to the church. I got to say something about the church and my ministry on behalf of the church. And he gets to the end of verse uh, 25. He says, I'm, I must, I've been given this giftedness and a stewardship from God to make the word of God fully known. And oh yeah, about that word of God, verse 26, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, revealed in Christ and what his work for us and his life here in Christ uh, on earth. And then he says, oh yeah, and re regarding those saints at the end of verse 26, you see here, one parenthesis after another, he's just like overflowing with, I got to tell you this, I got to tell you this, I got to tell you this. In verse 27, he says, to them, the saints that I just mentioned, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the Gentiles as opposed to just the Jews who up to that point were his people. The Gentiles, basically everybody else, to them, God chose to make known how great among them are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And oh yeah, regarding Christ, it's him that we proclaim. You see that? Paul overflows with this. And then eventually he comes back to it in verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I won't spend time on that. We talked about that our very first Sunday of this series. You can grab the CD. Him we proclaim, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. The second mark of a mature believer is that they labor to help others grow up. They labor to help others grow up. Look at that. Verse 28, 29. Follow along with me. Having said that it's Christ that we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, he says, we do that that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil. Paul labors and Paul strives and Paul struggles to present others mature in Christ, to help others grow up into him who is the head, Christ. He labors and toils for that. Words from his heart. The maturity of the believers is the reason that he sacrifices joyfully. The maturity of the believers is the reason that he proclaims Christ so passionately. The maturity of the believers is the reason that he warns and teaches with all wisdom. The maturity of the believers is the reason that he toils and struggles so wholeheartedly. It's the maturity of the believers. He labors to help them grow up. Does it define you? Does it define you this morning? Does it mark you that way? Or not? Mature here conveys this sense of knowing and consistently applying the truths of God's word in your life. Mature means knowing and consistently applying the truths of God's word in your life. That's what he struggles for. And that's what we need to be laboring for ourselves. Now, that should challenge each and every one of you. Like, what are you willing to do to help others grow up? Or is your Christianity more of just a kind of my thing? Nobody else. Let me ask you a few questions here. You can listen or you can just jot these down or whatever you want to do, but you search your heart on these, okay? Are you too proud to labor in menial tasks to grow others up? Are you too proud to labor in menial tasks to grow others up? Because you see, growing others up isn't just sitting down across from the table from them and helping explain the scriptures and just wrestle through the, the issues of their life. 
It is certainly that, directly one-on-one. It is certainly being able to lead a small group and to be in a small group. It is certainly able to preach to people. But it is also doing the things that are behind the scenes that enable those things to happen. It is writing the studies so that you can sit down across from one another. It is producing the Bibles that you have so that you can talk about the Word of God. It is presenting all this stuff beforehand so that we can worship corporately. It is setting up all the stuff from the children's ministry. It is being involved as a teacher's assistant. It is on and on and on. It is both indirect and direct. Are you too proud for that? Especially the indirect stuff. Here's another one. Would you rather complain about people's immaturity rather than grow them up into maturity? Would you rather complain about their immaturity, their lack of faith? I've been guilty of that more often than I want to admit. Oh, may God change each and every one of us in that respect more and more. That we complain less and that we do more to grow others up into Christ-likeness. Here's a third one. Are you so involved in other things and places outside the church that you're unable to grow others up inside the church? You're so involved in things outside these walls and outside our body of believers that you have no time to do anything front lines or behind the scenes to grow others up. Here's one. You hear this kind of often. Do you, do you have a false humility thinking that you're inadequate to help anybody with anything? You have a false humility that way. Oh, I, I can't do any of that. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm just not capable of that. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. It's a false humility. Nine times out of ten. Sometimes it's real. But more often than not, it's a false humility. Because no matter where you are in your walk, there are things that you can do, both directly or indirectly, that will help grow others and help them to know the riches that we're going to talk about in a second. No matter where you're at in your walk. Here's the last one. Do you fear being depleted or burned out? When it comes to laboring, laboring to help others grow up, do you fear being depleted and burned out? And so you say, no way. I'm keeping an arm's length distance away from that kind of stuff. Is that you? I thank God that Paul would have been able to answer no to every single one of those questions because if he hadn't, chances are you and I wouldn't be sitting here. But on that fear of depletion, Paul was very aware of it. Very aware of it. That's why he says in verse 29 here that I toil and I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Everything that I've said up to this point, you can't do on your own. Paul knew it. That's why he was explicit about it and saying, you need to do this in the strength of Jesus Christ because of the relationship that you have with him, because of the purpose, his honor and his glory, and the building up of the believers and the joy that it will give them. That's why you need to be doing it. You need to draw on that strength, keeping firmly in mind those purposes. If you don't, you will be burned out. If you don't, when you get up at 6 o'clock on Sunday morning to come in here at 7 o'clock, you will be burned out. It's going to get later and later as we get better and better at turn that. But you will get burned out if you don't, if you don't, struggle and wrestle with the strength that only Jesus Christ provides. Keeping firmly in mind, this is how you you wrestle in his strength and toil in his strength and labor in his strength. Keeping firmly in mind 
his purposes for what you're doing. That's the street. Now, that doesn't in any way, shape, or form mean that the granting of strength for us to labor for the maturity of others is going to be a cakewalk. It does mean that we will be enabled sufficiently to do it long term. Not a cakewalk. That's why in verse 11, look back at chapter 1 for a second. Chapter 1, verse 11, that's why he has already prayed for these people that he's, that he's writing to, in the church in Colossae. That's why he prays, may you be strengthened with all power according to his, that is God's glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul knew that without the strength of Christ, without walking in his strength, you're going to be depleted. Don't fear it, but make sure you are toiling and struggling and laboring with the strength of Christ because it's in that, in that instance, and in those moments, and in that time that you will have joy in it all. And then he kind of moves on here, having said um, that we need to labor that way. He says, this is what I'm specifically laboring for, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Remember, Laodicea is a town near Colossae, about 10 to 12 miles away. He had visited there on one of his missionary journeys. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. What? That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That is a mouthful. He does that often in here. We've already seen that a couple of times. Paul is saying here that he labors in order that they, the believers, being knit together in love, would be encouraged to experience the riches, that is, the joy, the confidence, the peace, the hope. They experience those riches of, of being fully assured in their understanding of who Christ is and being fully assured in their relationship with him. Fully assured. He said, I want you to experience the riches of that, of that assurance, of knowing who he is and knowing about him and knowing him personally. I want you to rest rock solid in that. Verses 1 and 2, it's what he's getting across. And by the same token, we labor for those same riches in others, do we not? Those of you who are doing this know this well. You labor by getting involved with them and serving with them and serving them. You labor by teaching them and being in a small group with them. You labor by having coffee with them sometimes when you just don't have time to. You labor in prayer for them and you labor in prayer with them and on and on. And you labor so that they will experience that full assurance and that overflowing joy happy to do it. Are you? I hope so. Mature believers labor to help others grow up. Mature believers joyfully sacrifice for others. And third, mature believers recognize bogus beliefs when they see them. Bogus beliefs. That's right. Look at verse 4, chapter 2. Paul says, I say this, and you have to stop right there. You've just read verse 3, but you need to understand what the this is that he's referring to. I think fully half, probably well over half, of understanding the scriptures is sorting out the pronouns. He, she, you, it, they, this, that. But if you sort them out, it starts to click, starts to become clear. And the this that he's referring to is in verse 3. I say this, what, Paul? That it's in Christ all the treasures of wisdom, knowledge, and knowledge lie or are hidden. 
not hidden, that secret like we can't find them, but that's where they lie. That's where they are. It's in Christ that all those treasures are. I say this, I say this in order that no one may delude you. Now, stop for a second. In all, in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie. For this context that he was writing to, that would have kind of chipped a few triggers in their minds because they had Jewish people who had not converted yet to Christ who were around them saying, hey, you, you guys don't have it quite right. Like it's not in Christ that you can have your assurance and it's not in Christ that all the, the knowledge and treasures of wisdom lie. It's in the law. It's in the law. It was a common phrase. This was a common phrase. Treasures of wisdom and knowledge was a common phrase that the Jews used up to that time to refer to the law. And rightfully so up to that time before Christ. And so for them, they would have read this and they would have gone, whoa, it's not the law. Like some of the, the, the Jewish uh, people in the synagogues have been saying to us and challenging us on. It's not the law, but it's Christ. It's in Christ that all of those treasures lie. It's in knowing about him and it's in knowing him personally. That's where they lie. For you and I, that means that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge don't lie in anything else that, that sounds reasonable or feasible, if you will. That's what he's getting at here when he says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, that is, believable or persuasive arguments. Paul wants us to realize and to acknowledge that all the wisdom and understanding that you will ever need for life and godliness are contained in a relationship with and a knowledge of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. That's what he wants you to know. And he wants you to treasure that beyond all treasures, beyond anything else in your life. He wants you to treasure that knowledge and that relationship and the wisdom that comes along with it. That's what he's trying to urge us towards and to cultivate it more and more. And he says here, I want this in you so that you're not going to be deluded or deceived by these plausible, good-sounding, maybe feasible type of arguments. I, want to be, I want, don't want you to be deceived by that. I want you to be sucked in or deceived by smooth-sounding philosophies. I don't want, to, want you to be deceived or sucked in by teachings and traditions of man that are extra-biblical and not biblical. I don't want you to be deceived and sucked in by New Age gobbledygook. I don't want you to be sucked in and deceived by weird religions. You ever had brain freeze on that? Like you're sitting in an air, airplane or whatever, and you're, you're talking to somebody, and they're starting to advocate some things that are just like, whoa, out there. And, and you know they're out there, but you just can't put your finger on why they're out there. Or maybe somebody's come to your door, and you're talking to them. Paul doesn't want us to be deceived by weird religions. Let me give you four standards. See, it's more important that you know the treasures and wisdom and knowledge of God as contained in his word through a relationship with Christ. It's more important that you know that firmly than you know the details of their thing. You hear me? And in order to know that, let me give you four standards by which you can measure some of that stuff as you're, so you don't have brain freeze or brain lock when you're talking to somebody that you know, you sense in your spirit, it's just out there. First thing is, do they consider the Bible to be the sole and authoritative word of God? Is the Bible to them the sole and authoritative word of God? If it's not the sole, see, some of them will say, yeah, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. I believe that. I believe that. But so is this other book over here and, and some of these things that have been handed down by people who lived centuries ago. Like, that's the word of God too. Uh-uh. Soul. 
Or some people will say, well, I kind of believe it's the sole word of God, but authoritative, like, you know, that it bears on my life? Well, not really sure about that. No, no. One way to measure weird religions, gobbledygook that's out there so that we're not deceived and deluded, like get right to the core of it. Do you believe that the Bible is the sole authoritative word of God? And at the very least, be able to put a little question mark in their mind. Okay, second standard here by which to measure bogus beliefs. Do they believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man? The deity and humanity of Christ. Fully God and fully man. If they, if they believe that he was just a great guy but not fully God, weird religion. If they believe that he was just God and he somehow wasn't man at all, like weird religion, and you and I just ought to like hang it up and go home because he can't identify for squat with what we're going through. But the word tells us explicitly that he came and dwelt among us and that he identifies with our temptations in our life. Fully God and fully man, do they believe that? Here's a third standard. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? You say, well, that, you know, doesn't everybody believe that? Like a historical fact? No, not everybody believes that. In fact, in the Islamic faith, they believe that it's a better thing that God spared Jesus from dying on the cross and that you and I are deluded by that. They think it's a better thing. Weird religion. I don't say that in a disparaging way at all. But it's a way to measure whether or not what you're hearing is truth or not. Fourth standard, is Jesus the only way to salvation? Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Here again, some people will say, yeah, I think he's one of the ways, but I think there's others too and other ways and good works. Maybe I can, I can be saved by good works. God will, God will look favorably on me for that. God will not look favorably on you for good works because when God looks at you apart from Christ, he sees a sinful person that his holiness can have nothing to do with. It is only through your faith in Christ that he can look at you through Christ and say, I see holy child of God, one of my own. Four standards by which to discern bogus beliefs. There are many of them. Now, there are times, let me say this, so that you don't walk out of here thinking you should never know anything about any, anybody else's beliefs. When you're in a relationship with somebody, like you're a friendship or whatever, a co-worker, and they're advocating bogus beliefs, and you've measured them as such according to these standards, like, it's good for you to go and, like, Look at what are the details of their things so that you can start to explain to them and try to help them out with that. But it's not yours to turn their hearts. But it is yours in that particular instance to know their thing a little bit more. All right. Mature believers recognize bogus beliefs when they see them. You know that goes along with that, and I'll just say this. You can add this if you'd like. But mature believers, the other side of that coin, because they know the treasures and the wisdom of knowledge of God, in Christ, they're able to identify with other God-honoring and Christ-exalting orderly in their worship churches. That's verse 5 here. Paul says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Your good order and firmness in faith. Like, those are churches who are God-honoring. Those are churches who are rightly dividing the word of truth. And we, we automatically, as a Harvest Bible Chapel, are firm with and are linked to, are in the spirit with. It's a term of intimacy there. We are so totally with them in spirit and they with us. In fact, right now as we speak, 
I wrote a letter to Glen Ellen. They are reading this morning, just thanking them. Harvest Bible Chapel of Glen Ellen. Thanking them for praying for us, for laboring in prayer for us, and for you. Do you realize that? And two weeks ago, Harvest Bible Chapel of Rolling Meadows publicly acknowledged us. And some of the others Harvest I, ha I know have as well and are praying for us. And I hope that you begin praying for them too. And it's not just them that we have a link with. The other side of this bogus belief thing is, as I said, being firm with, knowing them, resonating with them, identifying them with them. There are churches right here in our vicinity who are rightly dividing the word of truth, who are orderly in their worship, who are firm in their faith, who we totally identify with. And I've begun to get together with some of those pastors as time has gone by so that we have an open line of communication so that we, as the opportunities come up, can work together for the glory of Christ in these communities of the Quad Cities. That gives us much, much cause for rejoicing. And I love how Paul frames. Look at verse 24 and look at verse 5. Verse 24, now I rejoice. Now look at verse 5. Rejoicing to see your good order. It's like bookends. It's all about joy. Mature believers. Are you a mature believer? Do you have those marks? Do you recognize bogus beliefs when you see them? Do you joyfully sacrifice for others? Do you labor to help others grow up? Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to do that here at Harvest? Some of you are still on the cusp, but I'm not sure if this is my church home or not. That's okay. Some of you have said, man, this is my church home. Here are some great opportunities we presented. Frankly, we need help. Like, we, we did not anticipate this many people to walk in all at once. We're so thankful to God for it, and we're trusting him to provide in people like you. Are you ready to sacrifice and to do so joyfully? If so, plug in. Are you ready to labor to help others grow up, whether it's a three-year-old in the children's ministry or a 35-year-old or whatever behind the scenes? Are you ready to labor so that others can grow up in Christ? I hope so. This gives us much, uh, much to reflect on this morning. And uh, really, there's no better way to reflect on something like this than to um, come to the Lord's table or communion. I want to do that and just kind of segue into that this morning. Communion is a symbolic.